But uh, there's two applications to the metaphor, the carrot and the stick. Uh, One application would be that a farmer connected a stick to its mule or to its donkey to get it to move. And so in order for the donkey to move, that carrot would be out in front of it. And he would move because he wanted the carrot to that is that... um, there's this thing out there that looks great and you want it and it's ever elusive and it doesn't matter what you do, you'll never attain it completely. So that's the kind of the metaphor today and, and uh, that's what Solomon is going to talk about in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm going to just set my fishing pole. I can promise you this is not how I want to fish. Um, I'm just going to set my fishing pole here. Hopefully that'll balance out for the morning. There we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you see that I've uh, titled this one, The Secret to Contentment is Snuffing Out the American Dream, and that's, that's exactly what um, Solomon does here. He snuffs it out. When I mean snuffs it out, he, he dispatches it, takes it out on the street and kills it. He whacks it. He, you know, that's what I mean by snuff out, all right? All right that's, he's going to do that with the American Dream. Let's just for a moment, be okay with saying that the American dream is a great thing. The pursuit of happiness, that it's a great thing. This, this entire American dream is a great thing. But Solomon's going to prove to us that if that's the only dream, or if that's the greatest dream, or if that's the biggest dream, that it's going to end badly. It's going to end badly for you because uh, it's going to seem meaningless. It's going to seem like a vapor. In fact, it's not so much that Solomon has said, I've tested everything, I've tried everything, I'm finding it all meaningless. We don't have an issue with that, right? The problem comes is when we don't believe that what he's saying is actually true. That when we live our life with only a human perspective and no eternal perspective, with a human horizontal perspective, but no perspective of God or no perspective of Jesus or no perspective of eternity, no perspective of anything outside of this moment right here, right now, it's going to end in a meaningless fashion. And he's going to prove that again in chapter 2. This is a really hard, hard book uh, to get through. And yet we're going to spend six weeks here. Um, we talked last week about some songs that uh, could have been written or were written out of Ecclesiastes, and I talked with uh, Phil Leach in between services, and if you know anything about Phil, you know he's like a connoisseur. Uh, he's a walking encyclopedia when it comes to music, uh, and so we were talking about, well, this song by the Beatles, or this song, this could have been, and I finally looked at him, and I said, almost every rock song out there came from Ecclesiastes in some way, shape, or form. That had to have happened. Today's text, we could say that the cat in the cradle came from today's text. Have you heard that song, The Cat, Cat's in the Cradle? It's written by Harry Chapin. Actually, excuse me, it's written by his wife, Sandy. It was a poem that she wrote. He'd come home from being on tour. She said, here's what I've been working on. He set it aside, didn't think anything of it until his son was born. And recognized that he had been out on tour and doing all of this life and his son was going to grow up without him. And so he took the cat's cradle, cats in the cradle, and he made it into a song. And if you haven't listened to the words, you should listen to the words of that song. It's right out of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 along with, um, along with a song called The Wanderer by um, 
Johnny Cash. I don't know if you listen to Johnny Cash kind of talk, sing. Um, but uh, Johnny Cash has a song, and you too redid it a little bit. And uh, here's, here's a phrase from the song called The Wanderer. I went out there in search of experience to taste and to touch and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. It's like it just brought it right out of what we're going to look at textually this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now, originally, our Bibles weren't broken down the way that your Bible is broken down. If you look at chapter 2, there's some sections. It's broken down into sections. Our Bibles weren't originally laid out like that, and we know that, but that's how we're going to break it down in text today. We're just going to look at it in sections. We're going to break these down. What happens when we lack contentment in our life? What does that look like? What does a lack of contentment look like in our life? So I have a few things this morning that I want to share with you. Here's the first thing. A lack of contentment breeds self-gratification. A lack of contentment breeds self-gratification. We're going to see it right away in the text. Chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, very first word is... Chapter 2, verse 1, the very first word is... I... Now, we remember that this is a memoir of Solomon, and um, Israel is experiencing four decades, 40 years of peace after experiencing 40 years of war under his dad, David. Now there's 40 years of peace and prosperity, and they can have whatever they want. Things are going great in Israel, and here we are. By the time we get to chapter 2, and, and Solomon starts his, this part of his memoir with the word I. And that word I is found in almost every verse in chapter 2 and sometimes multiple times in verses. That should be a clue for us of where this is heading, this idea of, for our context, the American dream, the carrot that dangles out before us that we hope to be able to attain in this life at some point in time so that I can retire and be happy and do the things that I, that I want to do. But then he goes on, and just the very next phrase speaks volumes. I said in my heart, we know that uh, it, we would call that today, we would call that self-talk, right? Have you ever done that? You, you've had some self-talk, and, and, and when you're talking to yourself, it's not... Very often, it's not very good, right? You're, you idiot, why did you, you know, and, and people, you know, you're driving down the road and you're mouthing things and people are driving by and they're going, oh, that person's weird. But you're talking to yourself, right? And there's some things, this is what's happening here. And, and he's talking to his heart, or maybe your translation uses the word soul. He's getting to his deepest, most inner, innermost being, where in Psalm chapter four, excuse me, in Proverbs chapter four, one that he wrote, he says, above all else, guard your heart, for out of it are the very issues of life. And yet he's speaking to his heart, knowing that if we base how we behave or how we think on our feelings, we're going to be a mess, right? Now, now, for sure, we need to recognize that we have feelings and God gave us emotions. It says in Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. But 
Step away from, have these things be put far from you. Bitterness, anger, wrath, malice, slander. Put all of these things far away from you. That we recognize that if we live by our feelings, that we're going to behave wrong and we're going to think wrongly. And yet here, he's had enough. And he's one of the, considered one of the wisest men to have ever been on the earth. But he says in his heart, come now and I will test. That word test means uh, to experiment by experience. I'm going to test, I'm going to test you, my heart, with every pleasure I could possibly come up with. Does that sound like a good idea? If you say to your heart, I'm going to give in to any feeling that I have, to any pleasure that I have, to any want that I have, to any desire that I have. I'm just gonna experiment and I'm gonna live and I'm gonna educate myself through the school of hard knocks and I'm gonna do it with pleasure. So heart, soul of mine, enjoy yourself. Race after the carrot, but behold, this is what's really interesting here. He doesn't even share how that all worked out. He just summarizes it all right away. He says all of it was vain. All of it was empty. All of it was meaningless. All of it was like a mist. All of it was like a breath. It didn't last. It was temporary. All of those pleasures that I gave my life to is just vain. In verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? He gave himself to pleasure. That's hedonism. He gave himself to pleasure. He gave himself to laughter. Bible says that laughter is good, right? I mean, King James Version said laughter is good like a medicine. You know, the New Testament speaks that laughter is a good thing. So you have to connect laughter with the word that he uses here. He uses the word mad. That word mad there means perverse laughter or a laughter that leads to perversity, when we try to fill our minds or fill our lives or, or, or find laughter in this life, it is often connected to perverseness. And yet in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 2 and 3 and 4 tells us that there should be no silliness or coarse joking should even be named among us, but that we should speak with thanksgiving out of our mouths, that, that there's... We know that's true, right? That there's this perverseness in laughter and it can go there quickly, right? I, I actually don't, this is just for me, okay? Please don't, don't judge me and I'm not judging you. I don't watch comedies. They're perverse. I, we're so desensitized by things that are said and, and I've said this for years. When they, when they, when the world can get us to laugh at sin, they've hooked us. And they've desensitized what God has pushed asunder. How do we know that that's true? I think we can see an example in one person day, and I'm not judging this guy because I think he's one of the funniest men to have ever lived. Robin Williams. When he did clean comedy, he was incredible. But he also knew the more perverse he could become, the more laughter he could get. And he died an empty man. 
And what Billy Crystal said about Robin Williams is absolutely true. Billy Crystal said this, the funniest men, their humor is found in their greatest pain. The reason Robin Williams was so funny is because he hurt so deeply. Solomon's brilliant here. He is absolutely brilliant. When we give ourselves over to laughter to kind of self-medicate any kind of pain or suffering away. And he doesn't stop there. I search in my heart, verse three, I search in my heart how to cheer my body with wine. I like what Alistair Begg, he's a Scottish pastor in Cleveland. You should listen to him just for his voice. He's a good preacher, but he has a great, great voice. He says this about this section. Solomon goes from the comedy club and heads to the bar. He's giving himself so much pleasure that he can't find happiness, peace, joy, fulfillment in his life at the comedy club. So he walks across the street to the bar and he gives himself to wine, to much wine. And in fact, uh, some theologians, they don't really disagree, but uh, they come at it from different perspectives. Some believe that um, Solomon was actually a drunkard. But because he uses the word wisdom here, he didn't give up his wisdom. And, and understand that that word wisdom here is the wisdom that's it's a horizontal intellectual wisdom. It's not the wisdom that he talks about in Proverbs chapter 1 that he wrote. Proverbs chapter 1 verses 7 and 8 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom. That's a vertical wisdom that comes from God. Here he's talking about, I didn't give in to wisdom. I still kept my faculties. So some theologians believe that he really wasn't a drunkard. He just liked to drink. And others believe that that meant that he was a connoisseur of fine wines. He knew what was really, really good. I'm going to step into the fray here just a moment. That's That's an idiom, like pushing up daisies. Like, you, sir, are the idiom. You're... Remember that from the Pink Panther? No? Okay. Um, People laughed in the first. Uh, So anyway, uh, um, I'm going to step into the fray a little bit here because I'm going to speak outside of where I live. And I'm just going to shoot straight with you. In fact, uh, in a church I was at uh, before being here at PBC, I was known as the the dry pastor. Uh, The pastor didn't drink on a regular basis. No, I don't consume alcohol. Here and there, I, I have had a drink but I don't consume alcohol. We, we have to be okay that the Bible actually says that when used for God's intended purposes, alcohol or wine can be a joyous occasion, can be a good thing. We have to understand that because the Bible says that and it even says in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. So we have, to be, we have to be okay with that. But don't we also have to render truth to the Bible is absolutely right when it says that to be a drunkard is pure evil. That it's bad. That bad things happen when you're given to drunkenness. When you lose your faculties when you can no longer be wise and that fine line and I know this is really passe for such a day and age as this I grew up in a day and age when pastors were angry when they would talk about this and that you know prohibition and get rid of everything in your house and if you even put a 
uh, touch of alcohol to your lips because the alcohol in the Old Testament is different than the alcohol that we have today. Bull honkies. That's a Greek word. Greek word. I'm going to use it. Uh, I think it's Greek. I'm going to make it a Greek word. All right, all right. And, and uh, so we can't, can't use that dumb, dumb argument, dumb argument. But the Bible is absolutely right. And there's such a fine line, and I hope that it's not passing, and I hope you don't think that I'm, I'm, I'm raking this over the coals too much. I've just watched it in all seriousness wreck families. I've, I've seen the commercials. I've had the taste. I've had, I'll, just chew straight. The Moscato, it's a fruity wine. That's delicious. I get that. But to be, a, to be a connoisseur or to live or to feel like I can't live without that where it owns me, it's not that I have alcohol, it's that alcohol has me. We, we know that the, the Bible speaks valiantly against that. We can watch all the commercials for the Super Bowl and see the parties and even the after parties and think, man, they're having a blast. They're having a good time. When, when used rightly, it can be an okay thing. It can be a joyous thing when it's intended for God's purposes. But what they don't show you is the little boy or the little girl that sits at home waiting for dad to get home from his drunken binge where he comes home and he slaps his wife around, then comes into the bedroom, takes his belt out of the belt loops, and the kid hears those things and then gets beat from their drunken father. Or some kid comes home and their mom's laying on the couch because she's so inebriated she can't get up and cook him a meal. Solomon's nailed it here. If we're self-medicating with alcohol, because we can't live without it, it's going to lead to self-gratification, comparison, which is the next one, and utter despair, which is the last one. That's probably more than what I wanted to say there. And please listen to me carefully. Yes, I am a... I, I was considered a dry pastor. And I don't think it's my humor. I think they were talking about alcohol there. Um, but I can see both sides of that. And I've made that decision for my life. I'm not making that decision for your life. I've made it for my life, knowing that my personality binges and loves sugary yellow drinks, like Mountain Dew. And if I can binge on that and pound that stuff down, it's very possible that if I like something that tastes really, really good, I'm gonna find myself giving way to my faculties. That's my decision for my life that God has placed on my heart. And I am in no way, shape or form, hear me loud and clear, judging anyone who thinks or believes differently and can back it up biblically for your life. That last part's a key. Getting drunk, giving into pleasure, it didn't do anything for him. In verses four through six, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them, all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which water the forest of growing trees. That stuff didn't work. I didn't find pleasure in that. I didn't find pleasure in alcohol, so I'm gonna build stuff. And he didn't find pleasure in building stuff for himself. 
So in verse 7, it says that he bought property. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I couldn't have enough stuff, so I bought property. That didn't do it. So he said, I'm going to make more money. Isn't that just like us in the American dream? If I could just make a little bit more. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got He worked for more money. Then the next one's really weird. Then he got himself some singers. He bought singers. Isn't that weird that he would put that in there? Well, he didn't have the opportunity to hook up to his Spotify or to his Pandora and just have music by himself there. He's like, hey, I'm gonna lay back, listen to my iPod. Do they have those still? (laughs) Listen to Spotify on some kind of, uh, maybe a phone. Okay, whatever. Analogy's now lost. Uh, they didn't have that. So he bought singers trying to soothe himself with music. You do that, right? He's not way out of bounds here. I do that. Put the headphones on. I'm in a tough spot. I crank up Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It's a piano concerto. 1812 Overture. William Tell Overture. Tchaikovsky. That's not what you tune into. Possibly some of you tune into country music, don't you? That's another message. That's another, it's an entire message. It's an entire message. I got singers, both men and women. And then he gave himself over to sensuality. All of these things, alcohol is not gonna do it. I'm gonna buy more stuff. I'm gonna buy property. I'm gonna make more money. I'm gonna feel better by listening to music. I'm gonna buy sensuality. And he sums up verses one through eight and verses nine through 11. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. There it is, my wisdom remained with me. Okay, intellectualism remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, which is crazy that he has Proverbs 4.23 written out already. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all of my toil. And he's like, this is in the Old Testament, Pastor Jared, really this is exactly what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he said, In the last days, men and women will be given over to their own pleasure and not to the love of God. That's what's going to happen in the last days. They'll be lovers of pleasure, hedonistic, instead of lovers of God. And then he says this in verse 11, And behold, pay attention, all of it. All of it was just a mist, striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. A lack of contentment breeds this desire for self-gratification, if I can feel and get what I deserve. Here's the second thing. A lack of contentment breeds comparison. We know this is true. Social media has proven this over and over statistically proven it that when we are discontent we will compare ourselves to someone else or to something else i want a better life i want a different life 
I want something more than what I have. Never mind that Hebrews chapter 12 says that we run with endurance the race that has been set before us. That God has given us this race. My race is not your race. Your race is not my race. God's given you a life to live for him. But when we become discontent, we find ourselves comparing to other things. And social media has blown this out of the water. Somebody else has a better life, a different life than what I have. And I find myself in a place of discontent. And there's a biblical term for this that's really dark and hard. It's called covetousness. When I desire to have something that belongs to someone else that I don't have. What's interesting here in the text is that Solomon actually compares a little bit differently than that. He compares uh, living a wise life with living a life that's lived wisely or with a foolish life. And is there really any difference between living wisely or living foolishly? How, How do I come out at the end of this? And so he uses a really interesting word. In verse 11, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done. And then in verse 12, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And I know that our text uses, at least in the ESV, it says madness and folly, but they're actually joined together. A better translation would be mad folly, perverse foolishness. So I turned to consider wisdom versus perverse Foolishness, and that idea of consider is an important word. To consider it means that he faced it head on. He looked at it eye to eye. He went back and looked for it. You know, you and I have done that different times. When we're looking for something and we can't find it, and we've been into the bedroom and we've looked underneath the bed, and then we've gone out only to come back in and we lift the what is that called underneath the bed? dust ruffle of the bed. If you have one, you lift that and you look underneath it and guess what? It's still not there. But you considered, that's what this means here. He didn't find it earlier, but he's coming back to look at it again. Say what you want about this next person that I'm going to name publicly. I believe he is the greatest of all time when it comes to football. And and I got booed in the first service. When I use his name, I believe Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. That's just what I think, right? There's there's people that will disagree with that and you're entitled to your wrong opinion completely about that. Beside that, I remember when he was interviewed after he had won his third Super Bowl ring and the interviewer said, you've got it all. Why why do you wanna keep playing until you're 40 or maybe even until you're 45? Why do you... Why do you want to play? You have everything. You've, you've reached the pinnacle. You've reached it three times. What else is there that you could possibly want in this life? And Tom Brady's answer is horrifying. After winning all of those things, after being on the, on the top of the mountain, after being in the pinnacle, he says, what else is there? He says to that, the answer to that question, he says this, I, and he said it twice, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Here's a man who has everything and has the world by the tail and he's still out there looking for more. 
That's why this idea of wisdom is so important here when he's talking in verse 13. Here's this little glimpse of light. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly because there's more uh, gain in light than in darkness. So if you live wisely, you're living at least in the light. But if you're living in a foolish life, you're living in darkness. You're going to constantly battle darkness. So there's a little glimmer of light here only for him to spiral back out of it again. He gives this little glimmer of light and then he says, really, what difference is there between my life being lived as a wise man or being lived as a foolish man? I'm gonna end up the same as the fool. What he's doing there is something that's actually quite morbid. But we, I think we do this a lot, that we give this intellectual assent to the, morality, or to the, the mortality of man. Uh, that when we see that coming across our news feed, and, and uh, he's going to be honored again, uh, if he wasn't last night, maybe it was last night, Kobe Bryant's going to be honored, and he should be honored for a, a great life of basketball. But it's easy for us to watch on the TV and to watch the news and go, oh, man, this is terrible. Kobe Bryant passed away. What a horrific accident. And to find out that in the same week that that happened, 11 or 12 of our military personnel in the Middle East gave their life to protect us. And, and we can sit there and we can intellectualize that mortality and go, yeah, 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 people, people come and people go, people die. You could sit on your couch on a Saturday morning, turn on INSP, and you can watch Saddle Up Saturday all day because they're Westerns that are nonstop. And you watch cowboys killing other cowboys the entire day and sit there and go, I can intellectualize the mortality of man. But to do what Solomon just did here and to come to grips with this next statement, I must die. Do that for a moment. And you'll see why Solomon went dark. When he actually, when he actually thought inside of his heart and inside of his soul that I'm not gonna be remembered. It was so difficult for him. Verse 17, so I hated life because, because what is done under the sun was grievous for me and for all is vanity and striving after the wind. I've come to the same conclusion I came to earlier, but now he's at a place where he's hating life. And this is the third thing. A lack of contentment will lead you, it will breed despair. When you and I aren't content with the life that God has for us, and I'm not saying giving up on dreams. Please hear me carefully this morning. The American dream is a sweet thing. It's fun to have dreams. It's fun to have aspirations. Those things are awesome, but if that's the only thing that you're striving after, you're striving after a carrot. And it's only gonna lead to despair, deep despair. I hated all my toil, verse 18, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must uh, leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of it all, which I toiled. And I used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair. He's at this moment where even the stuff that I've made in this life, the heritage and the inheritance that I'm gonna pass down, the next people behind me will probably squander it all. And I'm in despair over it. I've worked for this. I've given my all. It's one thing to be disappointed with life, and yet it's another thing to go past the frustrations to a place of hating life. 
he's wrestling with leaving this inheritance because he's afraid that his family's going to squander it. An uh, uh, interview with Garth Brooks several years ago, the interviewer asked, uh, are you set for life? And he said, let me put it this way. My grandchildren's grandchildren have nothing to worry about. Now that dude has a lot of money. If my grandchildren's grandchildren have nothing to worry about, is that true? No. Solomon had a son, and his name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam became king after Solomon died. The united one kingdom, Israel, split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, underneath Rehoboam. Jeroboam became the king of the northern Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, while Rehoboam stayed the king of the southern kingdoms, the two tribes, known as the king of Judah. Solomon's kingdom split in the first generation. And an an invasion came from Egypt into the territory where Rehoboam was king. And scholars who are way smarter than I am believe that at that point in time, within 17 years, 90% of everything that Solomon had was gone. One generation. In the United States today, 60% of inherited wealth is gone in the first generation. 60%. Ian Proven calls these verses confessions of a workaholic. Because what he does here is he just talks incessantly about how hard he worked for what he gained. So Ian calls this confessions of an alcoholic, or of a workaholic. Confessions of a workaholic. Timothy Keller has a different view of it. He, he calls this passage right here, plowing water. That's what this looks like. Solomon was just plowing water. Let me know you from. Let me let me tell you this from a very personal um, illustration, and I got to get to a couple of other things yet this morning. But I just want you to hear uh, this story. I ca- called my dad this week, and uh, I thought that he had worked for a company for thirty-seven years, and he actually said uh, this week, I-, "I worked for them for thirty-six years. I I own the record. I worked there the longest, thirty-six years for this company." And uh, for this company, he was a budget controller. He oversaw millions of dollars in budgeting and payroll and all these things. My dad is great with numbers. How that didn't get passed down to me, I have no idea. But uh, he's just, he is wicked fast with an adding machine. And so much at the point in time, there were some things taking place on computer, but they did a lot with pencil. And so there's paperwork everywhere. 36 years, he gave his life to the Daco Corporation then Daco was bought out by Parker Hannafin. Parker Hannafin, within a year, said, we're going to close the plant and we're going to move it uh, to Wisconsin. You have a decision to make. You either move to Wisconsin or you take a severance and you close out to your retirement early. My dad didn't want to move to Wisconsin, so he took his early retirement. And then the company kept my dad on for another year so that he could um, clean out the plant. So they brought this great big dumpster into uh, the facility to the Daco Corporation. And my dad, for a year, shredded 
36 years of his life. Stupid carrot. 2005, we're living in Michigan. Whirlpool's world headquarters are in Benton Harbor, Michigan, and what happened in 2005 was slated a massive victory for Whirlpool when they took over Maytag. And and in Michigan, it was this beautiful, big purchase of Maytag. And the people were lauding everything that Whirlpool had done to get to this point for billions of dollars to buy Maytag, only to not recognize that Maytag was born and raised in this little town called Newton, Iowa. And when when Whirlpool bought Maytag, it destroyed the lives of the people in Newton, Iowa. They're still recovering to this day. Chasing a carrot. What Solomon's experience shows maybe more clearly than any other experience or anything else in the Bible is the reality of life without God is going to lead to despair. I have one more thing. This is a positive one. Those are really hard, weren't they? Let me, if you'll allow me a little bit of time to go over this morning. Just, I, I, you need to see this because he switches gears here. He, he turns a corner in, in verses 24 through 26. Contentment, contentment breeds a trust in God with everything. Not just a trust in God for everything, like he's going to give me whatever I need. Not just a trust of God in everything, but with, with everything. Whether it's a lot, whether it's a little, whether I've been abased, whether I abound. Those are Paul's words. He gives this glimmer of hope, a, a perspective from a different vantage point. He tells us or shows us that you and I, we can't find real joy. We can't muster up real lasting joy in and of ourselves. Our jobs can't do it. Our music can't do it. Our wives can't do it. Our husbands can't do it. Our children can't do it. We can't muster up the enjoyment ourselves. Real, lasting, fruitful enjoyment. It can't be done. Solomon proves it in the statement that he makes in verse 24. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Those are good things because I also saw this. It came from the hand of God. When we experience true joy and enjoyment, lasting joy, it's because we've recognized every good gift that comes from the Father, the Father of lights down to us, comes from a good God. Look at his list. We could look at his list and think really hedonistically. In fact, this is kind of the philosophy that falls out of, uh, falls out of this, that if we give our life fully and completely to all of this pleasure, then the opposite of that is to just stop doing it, okay? So if those things bring me pleasure and bring me happiness or at least fulfill me to some degree, I should stop doing it because those things are probably sinful and wrong and evil, right? All those things are bad, bad things. Stop doing them, as if that's the right thing. That's logical, what we should think here, right? That, that if those things are simply pleasurable, we should stop doing them. But look at the list. Music, laughter, 
sex inside the parameter of marriage, alcohol, these can all be good and holy things when they're used the way God intends for them to be used. They're not evil in and of themselves. The problem isn't that those things are evil. The problem is that I let them be evil in me. That's the difference here. So when we're content, we say, God, I trust you. I trust you with my marriage. I trust you with my children. I trust you with my career. I trust you with my life. And I'm going to be content with the life and the race that you've set out before you. I'm going to be content with that. If you leave God out of those things, you're going to pay the price. But in Christ, those things can be redeemed, and God can use them. Uh, could you uh, just close your Bibles this morning? Um, thanks for your patience in this. I want to, I want to leave you. Um, I was going to leave you with a verse. Uh, Normandy, let's uh, skip the verse. Not that the verse is bad. The verse is great. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. I want to skip that. I want to ask you a question. Everything's put away. What has you chasing carrots? Is, is, there, is there some form or some piece of discontentment in your life? And is that discontentment breeding this self-gratification or self-medication? Is it bringing you this discontentment is bringing you this desire to compare yourself to others or to other things? Is this discontentment breeding despairing? What carrot are you chasing? And it's not, I, could, I could be up here on the podium and ask that like a really harsh person, or I could stand down here on the floor and ask the same question. Jared, what carrots are you chasing? What carrots are you chasing? When we give in to that horizontal wisdom of intellectualism and thinking that this life is all that there is and we're living in this moment, we lose sight of the fact that God has created us to worship him. That God has created us to live this life for him. And because of that, this last point is extremely important. Contentment is the measure of your trust. If I were to ask you, do you trust God? It would show up in whether or not you and I are content because contentment is the measure of my trust in God with everything that he gives me or keeps from me because he is a good God. Are you content? Are you like me sometimes chasing after carrots?